My name is Matt. I'm one of our pastors. This is our time for getting to preach through the gospel with you guys. There is a second computer sitting right there because halfway through preaching to our congregation in Malden, this thing just stopped. So I had to do Joey Thompson like it. I just swung that thing over here. And I hope it wasn't terrible, but you know my personality and Joey's, how they're different. I prefer if the computer stays on. So if you see me diving for my backup, that's what's happening this morning. Um, hopefully this will work and we'll be able to roll through this. All right, it is Advent season. That means Christmas is coming. You know we don't do all the religious bells and whistles of live nativities, etc. in the life of our church doesn't mean we don't love Christmas and aren't really anxious to celebrate the coming of our Savior, the promised one. Uh, In the spirit of these holidays, holy days, we come across a, a beautiful text of Scripture today from Mark's Gospel with a very appropriate theme. Today we're going to be talking about food together. Does anyone know what family feud is anymore? Because I saw some new brothers hosting that thing, and that threw me right off. If we were to do a family feud up at the front today, and survey says with a couple of you guys, and the question is, what do families do together at Christmas time? The first answer, the most points, would definitely be presents, opening, giving, receiving gifts. The second answer would probably be food. We get together, and we eat over the holidays. Between my family... Grace's family, my day job, my soul care community, and my pastor team. My Google calendar for the month is just lit up with these blocks that say Christmas party, Christmas party, Christmas party. And Christmas party means food. I'm sure you've noticed that food is hugely important in the scriptures, in the life of God's people. There's a few foundational things there. It begins with this one. Do it. Eat together often the first command of Scripture for us. In Luke's Gospel, he gives this beautiful phrasing when he tries to describe how the Son of Man came. It's not exclusive phrasing, but he says it like this. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jesus' arrival was like a feast, and he made it known by eating and drinking. We've seen that all over the Gospel of Mark. We've got this bane. It's actually a rebellion in our culture. And that is that the shared meal is becoming a thing of the past. If you don't think about it, if you're not careful to think biblically about this, you could grab Dunkin' Donuts on your way to work in the morning. You could eat a Hot Pocket at lunch from your desk. And five or six or seven nights of week, you can be eating your food just on the way to a more important activity. That's bad culture that needs redeeming. We want to be a biblical people. That means that the meal should be something that's a part of our home and our church life together. So the first question is, do you eat together? And we want it to be a resounding, oh yeah, we do that. Second question is, who do you eat with? Jesus is so helpful to us here as well. We've seen this on the pages of Mark's gospel over and over again. Who was it that this Messiah who came eating and drinking, doing it with? The answer is, anybody who wanted to eat. He ate with family. He ate with friends. He ate with fellow believers. He ate with scribes and Pharisees if they would have him. And he ate with tax collectors and sinners. 
Jesus broke bread, table fellowship with the clean and the unclean. Hospitality is the key idea here. We're supposed to be gospel people. That means that our table is open, not just to us, but to any who would feast with us. Uh, This is why we tend to rag on the church basement potluck supper. You know what that deal is? We do that not because we don't think it's right and appropriate for the saints to eat together. We do it because we don't want it to become an insular activity that only happens among the saints in the walls of the church. You want to eat with seven milers? Do it. Do it in your home. Do it in your, your dorm room. You want to clean that up first, but do it there. Do it at a local food joint and have a rhythm of inviting others to eat with you. That's Jesus-like. Okay, those are foundational, but there's a third question here. This is the one we get to deal with together this morning. What about the food itself? When you go to eat, what about the menu choices? Is one kind of food holier than another kind? Are you a better person or more pleasing to God or more spiritual depending on what kind of food you eat? Does holiness before God, which every single one of us should long for in our bones, does it necessitate you avoiding certain kinds of food? What about the food? All right, in our text today, the Holy Spirit is very gracious when he gives us a huge and surprising and important and beautiful answer. I'm just going to read that first part again with you, and we'll pray, and we'll get into this. Jesus called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can make him unclean or defile him. But the things that come out of a person is what defiles him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Therefore, or thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. All right, let's sit under that scripture together. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would become a people who love your word, that it would be the final authority for our faith and our hope and our life, and that today as this crew does something amazing and comes to a church building just north of Boston in 2011 to sit under the preaching of the word, that you would be kind to your people that their hearts would be soft and their minds would be ready to understand and believe this gospel news that you have for us today. Come and do this for the fame of the name of Jesus. That's our prayer. Hear and answer, Father. Amen. Okay. That text that we're preaching today from Mark's gospel, it's not going to make sense to anybody in this room if we don't first deal with the older covenant context that comes before it. Okay, what I am about to read to you is going to sound strange and weird 
to your Boston ears. I'm just warning you, I'm about to read a text from the biblical book of Deuteronomy. That is the older covenant book that means the second giving of the law. And I'm going to be reading from the 14th chapter in my Bible and the food laws. So just hang out in this text and just listen to it with me. It's going to sound weird, but we're going to go somewhere with this. And don't ever forget that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's useful, even if it's been fulfilled in Christ. Okay, hear this with me. You are the sons of the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. All right, now here we go. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals that you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these. The camel, the hare, and the rock badger. Ooh. Because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof. They are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. The flesh you shall not eat, the dead bodies you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. Whatever doesn't have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It's unclean for you. You may eat all the clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the short-eared owl, the barn eerl owl, and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. All winged insects are unclean for you. You shall not eat them. All cleaned winged things you may eat. For, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Okay, that was good. I need us to love Scripture and to let that set the stage. Three things I need you to grab from that text of Scripture. Here's the first one. The ground of the older covenant food laws in particular, and all of those purity codes of the older covenant was the grace of God to his people. Here's what I mean. The idea is that Yahweh, the Lord, is perfectly holy. In his free grace, he saved his people from slavery in Egypt. He set them apart, away from the other nations as his treasured possession, and now they need to be holy, like he is holy. So these civil, ceremonial laws of the older covenant were not grounded on God's people somehow attaining to righteousness and acceptance before God 
because they kept the food laws. That's not it. The ground of the food laws was them responding to the grace of God that he had shown to them. You should have heard it. We started with, you are the people of the Lord your God. And we ended with, you are a people holy to the Lord. You feel that? Grace, we respond with obedience. Okay, second thing is this. What was the adjective that he used to describe the good foods? What did he call them? It's quite quietest church in the history of the planet. Was anyone paying attention? Clean. Good. These are clean for you. I need you to feel clean with me. God's people were to pursue cleanness, purity, holiness in all things. This is what it meant to be the sons of a clean, pure, brilliant God. He is holy, us too. In the older covenant, it wasn't just obedience to the moral laws of God. There was all kinds of other laws that helped drive this point home. Your dress, your haircuts, right? The, the curls over here, never cut on an Orthodox Jewish person. Your architecture of your home, the calendar that you followed, and your food. All of these things helped to show off your holiness, your distinctness, your set-apartness. We belong to God, so we eat different. We eat clean. Okay, good. Third thing, very important. How did certain foods get categorized as being clean? It was God's decision. He declared it to be so. That was it. He said, parted hooves, choose the cud. I had to look that thing up on Wikipedia this week. It's like, choose the cud. I can tell you about that later if you would like. God said, those are clean. No scales, no fins. God said, not clean. So there's nothing inherently clean or unclean about the animals themselves. It's God's decree that makes it so. It's so important because if later on in redemptive history, God wanted to say, declare all foods clean now, he could do it. It's a matter of his word. Okay, I hope that was helpful to you. Let's put all that together. How would a really good older covenant Jew, a believer, have thought about food? They would have held to a very limited diet. They would have abstained by faith from lots of different foods. We read the list. I'm so glad the ibex was a clean animal. I was sweating that one. When they did this, it was never as a sign that they were better than anyone else, right? It was as a sign that they had received grace from God. Every time an older covenant saint did not eat rabbit or grasshopper or sausage links or bacon or pork or clam chowder, every time they were rejoicing in the gospel grace of God. I'll put it to you like this. If somebody from Joey's Soul Care community invited an older covenant saint to their annual pig roast, what would their answer have been? Of course I'm not coming to your pig roast. God saved us from slavery in Egypt, and he taught us to put that salvation on display by not 
eating certain foods. So why don't you guys join us in not roasting a pig to the glory of God? That would have been their answer. That was the intent of the older covenant food laws. Okay. Now, like with everything else, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' people when he was with us, they got these food laws all twisted up like a pretzel. And that's a horrible joke that didn't work in the first time I preached it either. (laughs) That was bad. Okay, they got it twisted up, and I'll leave it at that. First, they lost sight of the ground of the food laws that we talked about. And they fell into the folly of thinking that they could attain true purity before God by keeping his food laws. Let me wash my hands real clean. I am not letting these two sinners eat at my table, and I'm going to eat the right foods. Then God will be pleased with me. Can you feel how they got the whole thing backwards? Instead of my, my grace driving my obedience, it was my works will earn God's favor. And that focus on personal works and that focus on external behavior rather than internal repentance of the heart, does what it always does with all self-righteousness. I am better than you because I don't eat certain foods. Eating pig, how disgusting, filthy sinner. Clam chowder, what's wrong with you? Do you feel that? They got the whole intent backwards. That attitude turns things on its head They were supposed to be showing off the undeserved grace of God to a nothing people. And instead, they were using their food to show off that they were morally superior to the people around them. And you don't have to be religious to do that with your food, do you? I'm finally reading really angry atheist Christopher Hitchens' book. It's called God is Not Great. It's been a fascinating read so far. would love to do a book club with you guys on it. It would be helpful. In the third chapter, he goes on this little excursus about religion and food laws and specifically the pig. The chapter is called Heaven Hates Ham. He, is, he does have the gift of humor for sure. And he starts with this statement. All religions have a tendency to feature some sort of dietary injunction or prohibition. Okay, well, as is one of his problems throughout the book, what he should say is all religions except for gospel-centered, reformed, orthodox Christianity. He does that throughout the book. But in this chapter, he just paints it with a broad brush, and he hammers on Muslims and Jews, and Catholics, and Hindus for their food laws. And he says, only religious people would be so silly, and so foolish, and so legalistic, and so proud as to see themselves as more pleasing to God because they don't eat certain foods. How religious and how ridiculous. That's the point of the chapter. But what is Hitchens missing? It's another thing that he misses throughout the book. Moral superiority about personal food choices 
is not strictly a religious phenomenon. And we 2011 Bostonians, we know it to be true. We live in a totally not religious culture, right? But we are surrounded by food Pharisees. If you don't think this is true, go have lunch in Somerville. Walk into the True Bistro vegan restaurant on Broadway and order a cheeseburger. See the response that you get. Or flip that around. After, after church today, go to Five Guys in Wellington Circle and ask for a garden salad or a tofu sandwich and see the response that they give you. What's the point? There will not be a religious person in either restaurant. This is just north of Boston, right? We don't have those. But they will look down on you with some serious moral superiority. How dare you order that food in this restaurant? You can hear the moral superiority in the name of the first one, right? True bistro, as opposed to all the false food choices. Do you feel that? You do, right? Just like who? Just like the religious Pharisees. I am better than you because I eat better than you. Okay, into the face of all of that religious and irreligious, self-righteous food arrogance, we come to this beautiful text of Scripture. Love Jesus. So Jesus has just had an argument with the Pharisees about, how could your disciples not wash their hands before they eat? They're going to be unclean. And Jesus uses that incident to teach them a parable. He says, look, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into a person can make them unclean. It's the things that come out of a person that make them unclean. Whatever goes into a person, since it bypasses the heart and goes to the stomach and is expelled, is meaningless when it comes to righteousness, to cleanness. The heart is the place that matters. The stomach, which digests food, is of no concern with holiness before God. It's the heart. You don't get dirty with food heading in through the stomach. You get dirty with sin heading out of the heart. This is what Joey preached on beautifully two weeks ago. These Pharisees were convinced that eating forbidden food or not washing your hands or eating with sinners would make them unclean. And Jesus says, no, you got it backwards. He reverses it. Uncleanness is a matter of the heart. And so they were focusing in the wrong place. It's not what goes in that matters. It's what comes out that matters. And then Mark does something that he almost never does in this whole gospel. He throws in a little comment of his own. It's in the text, but it's in parentheses. Did you notice that? So it is not something that Jesus explicitly um, or literally said this day, but it is somewhere that Jesus was going. And by the time that Mark is writing his gospel, he knows it. It's become clear. Remember that when Mark is writing his gospel, there's this big explosive thing going on in the early church. Argument about kosher foods and dietary injunctions. And does a Roman Gentile who becomes a Christian have to start eating like a Jew? Mark was aware of this. He was writing to Rome. 
He knew it would be helpful for these Italians to talk about this conflict. And so when he writes about Jesus' teaching of inside versus outside, clean versus unclean, stomach versus heart, he just can't help it. He got to draw out the implications of Jesus' teaching. And so he writes a parenthesis and he throws in this comment, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Whoa. How in the world did Mark and the New Testament church get from that text about the ibex and all those other unclean animals in Deuteronomy 14 to all foods are clean? How did they get there? Jesus led them to it. All right, let's talk about this. Remember that the older covenant Jewish scriptures were never meant to be a timeless code of behavior, right? The Mosaic laws were given at an important time of redemptive history, but they were never an end in themselves. They were going somewhere. They spoke beautifully of the importance of purity and cleanness, but those laws could never make someone clean. That's what the purity codes and the laws were. They were pointing to a need to be clean. They were just pointers or signs. But when you finally arrive at your destination, do you need the signs anymore? Google Maps on my iPhone is wicked helpful when I'm trying to get somewhere, right? You pop in the address, it gives it to you. Somehow you survive the drive because you keep looking at the map and the street and you're on the sidewalks and fire hydrants and kids screaming and fences and dogs. But eventually you get there. When you arrive at your destination, what do you do with the map that was pointing the way? Except for you people who are just addicted to your phone, you put it away and you enjoy the reason that you came. This is the same exact thing going on with these food laws. Oh, they were beautiful in their time. But they were just signs pointing to a greater reality that was coming with Christ. And Mark knows that that reality has come. We would say it like this. In the gospel, in his atoning, cleansing death and vindicating resurrection, Jesus fulfilled, completed, ended the need for the food laws. First, because on the cross, the cleanness that the food laws were pointing to finally became a reality. The blood of Christ cleansed his people, you and me and all saints of all time, forever from their sin. Our hearts were made right permanently in the gospel. We were justified, set apart, made holy, cleaned by Jesus. No food obedience could ever give us that righteousness and no food behavior can ever take it away. And the second thing is this. In the gospel, the grace of God overran the banks of ethnic Israel and flooded to all nations, all people groups, all men, all women of the world. This too is where the older covenant was headed, right? Right? In Christ, all, all, all could be clean. The universal offer of the gospel, all 
can be made clean. And so can you feel how Jesus, declaring that all foods are clean, is a picture or a type of the gospel? All foods clean is a a sign of the power of the cross to make all people clean. That's what Mark is saying, that in the gospel, Jesus, who is God, who once declared some foods to be unclean, now, in the fulfillment, in the cross, declares all foods to be clean. Okay, I said before that every older covenant saint did not eat rabbit or grasshopper or sausage links or bacon or pork or clam chowder because they were rejoicing in the grace of God to them by abstaining from certain foods. But now, it's just the opposite with you guys. Every time a new covenant saint does eat rabbit or grasshopper or sausage links or bacon or pork or clam chowder, we are rejoicing in the grace of God by not abstaining from any type of foods. So if somebody from Joey's Soul Care invites you to the annual pig roast in Wakefield as a gospel-centered, born-again believer, what do you say? I will be there, and I will be grilling bearded vulture, brother. Let's do this thing. All foods are clean. On the cross, Jesus dealt with my sin and made me clean. And now I get to put the universal offer of the gospel on display by having a universal menu at my disposal. Okay, so our application becomes really simple. Probably anybody could slide up here and take this sermon home. What's the question that we began with? What about the food? We're going to be a people who eat and drink together. Is any kind of food holier than another? Am I a better person, more pleasing to God, more spiritual, depending on what food I eat? Does holiness before God necessitate avoiding certain types of foods? Jesus' answer is clear. Seven Mile Road, as a people whose hearts have been cleansed by Christ and the blood that he shed for you, you are free to eat anything you want to the glory of God. That's our food law. Don't ever let anyone guilt you into thinking that your personal food choices are a matter of morality or sin or righteousness. Guilt should not be a factor in you choosing to eat certain kinds of foods. All right, on Friday, I was stopped at a light in Revere. So I'm already anxious because I don't like stopping at lights. And I'm getting ready to preach this sermon to you guys, and I look to my left, and there's a bus. It's got this ad on the side for juice. And it says, zero calories, zero sugar, zero guilt. And I just started yelling in my car, liar! Jesus has declared all foods guilt-free and clean. And then I drove right into the uh, Walgreens parking lot, and I went in and I said to the clerk, come here, I want whatever you have to drink that has the most sugar and the most calories in it. And I want a three liter of it, and I'm getting on that bus, and I'm chugging that thing to the glory of God. And the guy was like, what on, what just happened? A man is not defiled, does not incur guilt by what goes in his mouth, but rather what comes out of it. Okay, so you want to eat chicken kebab with no bread, no crouton, and no dressing? 
do that, believing the gospel, you're free from guilt. You want to eat Kraft macaroni and cheese from a box? Do that, believing the gospel, free from guilt. You want to eat a tofu burger with brown rice on the side? Do that, believing the gospel, free from guilt. You want to eat a double wobble with fries and a chocolate milkshake? Do it, believing the gospel, free from guilt. Kelly's roast beef, true bistro vegetables, fine. Honey nut Cheerios, Captain Crunch peanut butter, chocolate, Quaker oatmeal, fine. Green salad, Caesar salad, taco salad, tuna salad, chicken salad, whole milk, skim milk, milk straight from the udders of a free-range cow on the farm, <laughs> strawberry milk straight from the fridge at Dunkin' Donuts. Do it, free from guilt. Pomegranate juice, Kool-Aid, Tang. Have I made my point? You're free. Eat, friends. Eat. And if you are a food Pharisee who looks down on others because of their personal food choices, who props yourself up with an air of moral superiority because you eat better than the next guy, who guilts others, we need you to stop that because you're not walking in step with the gospel. If you like to shop at Trader Joe's, do it to the glory of God, but don't look down on someone who prefers Market Basket. If you want to shop at Whole Foods, do it to the glory of God, but don't look down on somebody who just shops at Trader Joe's. If you are on a specific diet, I love that. Roll with it. Don't look down on someone who isn't. It should be our joy at Seven Mile Road to be one body that eats together a lot and that eats all kinds of foods. That's a picture of the gospel. Okay, so I think you know what I am saying in love for you as a pastor because this text has some sharp edges to it. Let me also give you two applications of things that I'm not saying. I don't want you to read it into this, okay? So let me be clear. The first thing I am not saying is this. Do not use your freedom to eat the food of your choice to the glory of God as a means of sinning against your brother. Just because there are no inherently unclean, sinful foods, it doesn't mean that you can't sin with food. There's a lot of ways to do that. And Christian love requires that we take into consideration those who are around us. In other words, if ordering a beer is going to cause your brother who is with you to stumble because he has an alcohol issue or an alcohol history with his parents or he's unsure of some of these things, Christ has not set you free to hurt your brother. Don't order the beer, even though you're free to. Use your freedom to serve your brother or sister. Yes, you are free to eat what you want. You're also free to not eat whatever you don't want. I love the way that Jesus' apostle Paul puts this, and this brother is the apostle of freedom, and he says this, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. Do you feel the love in his heart for the other that Christ has died for? Never do we use our freedom in Christ as a means to get proud and to cause others to stumble. 
So as we exercise our food freedom in Jesus, do that with a humble, selfless spirit. Okay, and then two, I am not saying to go from this sermon eating Twinkies and Oreos and drinking chocolate whole milk 24-7. Because some of these dudes right here were looking at me like, oh man, we are going to Kelly's. Just because all foods are morally clean does not mean that they are all equally nutritious. Vegetables are healthier than Doritos. Can someone tell my son that? Oatmeal is healthier than that Entenmann's pecan Danish ring with just the sugar dumped on top of that thing. Water is healthier than Coke. I'm not telling you not to be wise with your diet. Do that. Take care of your body. It's the temple of God's spirit. There are some seven milers who are great with this food, cooking, diet stuff, okay? Seek their counsel in fashioning a healthy diet for yourself and for your family. But when you do it, don't do it like a Pharisee. Don't do it like you have arrived at some higher spiritual plane than the rest of us. Eat well while holding fast to the freedom that we have in Christ to eat anything. We show off the grace of God by eating among ourselves with sinners and eating broadly to show all that he has done for us in the gospel. All right, you know that the story of redemption began with a meal, a bad meal. Adam sinning the same way that you would have and I would have, eating the fruit of the tree that he should not have. You know that there were shadows in the older covenant about feasting. The people would come to the altar, which was actually a table where they would sacrifice some of the food to God, take the rest, put it on plates, and eat it as families and community. In the new covenant, all of that has been fully redeemed and fully restored, that at the center of our worship and our life is a meal. Two simple elements reflecting the gospel that has set us free in every possible way. The same way that you come down this aisle to take these elements and to eat free from guilt and shame, it's my heart's desire that every meal you eat the rest of this week would be eaten free from guilt and shame to the glory of God. All right, let me pray and we'll do this. Father, you are a good dad and you provide food for us. In this meal, you provided it by calling your son to die for us, to give up his body and his blood that we might be saved. And so we feast in joy today. And every day, you provide and you provide and you provide and you provide. Will you teach us to have hearts that respond right to your grace, being a people who share meals together, who feel no moral superiority, but instead point to God's undeserving grace as the thing that has changed their hearts. Jesus, you're present at this meal. We don't miss that. We remember you and the way that you have fulfilled this idea of cleanness by taking our filth on yourself that we might be made clean. We rejoice in that free of shame today. Amen.